Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 155, The City-State of Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm sitting down with Yale history professor Mark Peterson to talk about his new book, The City-State of Boston, The Rise and Fall of an Atlantic Power, 1630-1865. In the interview, Professor Peterson will tell us why he believes that from its settlement a century and a half before the U.S. constitutional government was founded, until the end of the U.S. Civil War, Boston had a political, economic, and social identity completely independent from the rest of what's now the United States. He'll also tell us surprising stories about money in early Boston, a French-born British Army officer who embodied Boston's relationship with Acadia, and what it meant for Boston to be a slave society where the enslaved people were kept out of sight. But before Professor Peterson joins me, it's time for this week's upcoming historical event. Because we have an author interview this week, we're skipping the Boston Book Club. However, for our upcoming historical event this week, we're featuring a Halloween-themed lunchtime talk at the Massachusetts Historical Society on October 30th. The 2015 movie The Witch, sometimes spelled the Vavitch with two Vs, is a favorite for Nikki and me. It takes the ideas about witchcraft that early Puritans believed were real and treats them literally. The plot follows one deeply observant family alone on the 17th century Massachusetts frontier as they begin to wonder whether they've been cursed. Are they falling prey to hysteria, or are the devil's minions actually stalking them among the forests and cornfields? Much of the drama centers around teenage daughter Thomason's role as an object of shameful lust for her brother and of jealousy for her mother, and the tensions ramped up by the appearance of an increasingly creepy cast of animals, from a rabbit to a raven, to a goat named Black Philip. In her talk, Inhuman Women and Puritanical Legacies in the Witch 2015, Amber Hodge of the University of Mississippi tackles this portrayal of animals and women head-on. Here's how the MHS describes her talk. The Witch visualizes historical oppression as an origin for present-day animalization and concordant disenfranchisement of women who operate outside of prescribed social norms. This talk connects MHS's archives to the witch's depiction of animality as both feminine and evil, to demonstrate the legacy of patriarchal puritanism and the possibilities for resistance. The event will be held at noon on Wednesday, October 30th. It's free and open to the public. Just bring a brown bag lunch to enjoy during the talk. And because we know that not everyone can make it to the back bay in the middle of a weekday, we have a bonus event. Next week, author Nancy Seasholz will be joining us on the podcast to discuss her new book, The Atlas of Boston History, which is available to pre-order now. By the time you hear our interview with her, the book will be out, and this coming Thursday, you can attend the book launch party at the main branch of the Boston Public Library. It's like a record release party, but hopefully much, much nerdier. Here's how the BPL website describes it. Join us on the evening of October 24th to celebrate the launch of a landmark volume, The Atlas of Boston History. A reception will be held at 5 p.m. at the Newsfeed Cafe, followed by a 6.30 presentation from the book's editor, historian Nancy S. Seasholes in Rab Hall. The evening will conclude with a book signing by Nancy and other Atlas contributors. Attendance is free, and no RSVPs are required. We hope you'll be able to join us. 
We'll have the links you need to find more information about both these upcoming events and this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 155. While you're on our website to find out more information about our featured events, I hope you'll consider becoming a sponsor. We have a small group of dedicated fans who support the show by contributing $2 a month or more on Patreon. Their support helps us pay the bills and keep the podcast running. And in return, we have tokens of appreciation from a Hub History sticker to a private walking tour of Boston. If you'd like to be part of this group, just click on the support link on hubhistory.com or go to patreon.com slash hubhistory. Thanks, as always, to all our new and returning sponsors. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Professor Mark Peterson is the Edmund S. Morgan Professor of History at Yale University and the author of the new book, The City-State of Boston, The Rise and Fall of Atlantic Power, 1630-1865. Professor Mark Peterson, welcome to the show. Thank you. I have you here today to discuss your new book, The City-State of Boston, The Rise and Fall of an Atlantic Power, 1630-1865. But before we get into that, I noticed in reading your, your author bio that you have a previous book about Puritan New England, and I guess you did your doctorate at Harvard? That's correct. So did you develop this deep interest in Boston and, and New England broadly at that time, or did you already have the interest in Boston and that's what brought you to, to Harvard? No, actually, it, it, it came kind of by surprise. I uh, had never really worked in not just Boston, but American history generally while I was in college. I was a, a Harvard undergraduate uh, in history of science. So my first exposure to uh, the history of Boston came kind of by accident. Uh, and then when I went to graduate school in history, I started working with Bernard Balin, um, who uh, was a great, is a great historian of early America and of early New England in particular. And so I kind of uh, started to develop my interest in the subject then and, and wrote that first book you mentioned on uh, the relationship between economic development and Puritan religion. That's really interesting. You really sidled up to the history of Boston and New England from uh, the history of, of science and medicine. That's a different approach. Right. And I actually think that was important uh, because I wasn't deeply schooled in Boston and New England's historical traditions or in the main narratives of American history when I was in college. And what that meant, uh, I, I took a lot of coursework in early modern European history. And it meant that when I first uh, read a lot of these works when I was in graduate school, I actually found them quite strange that the kinds of stories they told, the narrative arcs, didn't mesh very well with my understanding of a lot of these subjects from a European historian's point of view. And so I actually think that coming to this subject from a distance has been really uh, helpful to me in seeing things that aren't necessarily uh, obvious. Uh, it's also the case that I did most of the research and writing on the city-state of Boston uh, when I lived either in Iowa or in Berkeley, California, where I taught before coming to Yale. And I do think that perspective on Boston's history was very helpful to me. So you may not have considered yourself sort of deeply steeped in Boston history before this work, but you must now. It's really an ambitious work. It's got a, a sweeping scope from John Winthrop and the Arbella fleet, and it goes right through the renditions of Shadrach Mencken's and Thomas Sims right before the Civil War. Right. 
Yeah, no, I know a lot about Boston now. <laughs> I, I, I've come around. Well, I, I have to say, I, as a Bostonian or an adopted Bostonian, I really embrace the central theme of the book that, that Boston had a separate identity, a sort of an identity that sets itself apart politically and culturally from the rest of North America. You describe it as having been a city-state from 1630 to 1865. I want to start from the beginning. What set Boston apart in 1630? It seems like at that time, each European settlement was itself unique. Was Boston separate from that already or was that something that evolved later? Well, no, I think that's a useful point. Um, by the time Boston was founded, by the time the Massachusetts Bay Colony started, it was actually pretty late in the European colonizing projects in, in, in the Americas, which of course began with Columbus. Uh, you know, so we're really talking about almost 150 years into European colonization. And even for the English, Jamestown already existed and Plymouth right next door already existed. Right. And before that, there had been a whole series of, on the whole, not very successful experiments. <laughs> but but those were very much part of the, the knowledge and the memory of the founders of Massachusetts. And so, the thing that distinguishes the Mass Bay Project and the founding of Boston right from the beginning is, I would say, the depth of Boston's founders' commitment to a particular kind of colonial project that was rooted in two strands of the sort of deep historical past. Uh, one strand, since these were, were, were Puritans, was the Bible, and in particular, the, uh, the Gospels and the early spread of Christianity from its origins in Palestine out into the Roman Empire, the Mediterranean world. And so, because English Puritans imagined that they were, in a sense, reconstructing their churches on the model of the Gospels and, and the very earliest Christian churches, they saw their you know, large and well-financed efforts to create a colony in North America as a kind of continuation of that tradition. And so, for that reason, for instance, the Great Seal of Massachusetts depicts an indigenous sort of person uh, with the words coming out of his mouth, come over and help us. Well, that's a direct quotation from the Acts of the Apostles in which a, a Macedonian comes to St. Paul in a dream and says exactly that, come over and help us. And so, with this great seal, and there are lots of other documents and evidence that support this, this is how I talk about the, uh, the early Bostonians imagining that they were setting up a kind of colony, a sort of city colony in the New World modeled on those uh, Roman-era projects. And then the second strand is exactly coming out of the governmental traditions of the ancient Mediterranean, the city-states of Greece and of the early uh, Roman world before it takes on its imperial qualities. Here, too, there's a, a lot of evidence that the self-governing form in both uh, church affairs but also in uh, civic government was really central to the kind of community the people of Massachusetts Bay wanted to set up. Uh, in fact, in its first decade or so, 
the commitment to a kind of egalitarian self-government was was so strong uh, in early Massachusetts that it actually repelled other Puritans who were members of the nobility and who considered that they might want to move to America and join this Puritan project, only they didn't really like the idea that this was, uh, that, that Boston was based on this uh, sort of ancient world self-governing form where ordinary people had the right to elect their own representatives and governors and the like. These Puritan aristocrats didn't see the world that way and didn't end up wanting to join a, a project with that kind of egalitarian vision. So it's those two things coming together in the founding of Boston that made me convinced that the, the best way to talk about what they were trying to accomplish was effectively to see them as creating a sort of latter-day uh, new world version of the city-states of the ancient world. Now, to, to illustrate your central thesis, you bring in a lot of stories through that 200-ish year scope of the book, some of which are very familiar. We talk about Paul Revere's ride, the story of Phyllis Wheatley's in there, the siege of Lewisburg. Mm -hmm. But there are also a lot of stories that are, I think, will be less familiar to our listeners. And I, I'm hoping to ask you about a couple of those. Good. And I think about, I was trying to do a, a page count, and I think that over a third of the book was focused on the 17th century. So I thought I would start with one of the stories that comes out of the 17th century in the book. Sure. I found it very interesting that there's an extended section about money in mm -hmm. early Boston and especially our silver shillings here in Massachusetts. And you begin that section by comparing two weddings that both happened in 1676. Mm. There's right. Hannah Hull, who's marrying our famous diarist Samuel Sewell. And then Doña Lorenza Quiroga in Potosi, Peru, I think if I've that's right. That correctly. Right. So what do those two weddings tell us about early Boston and our relationship with money? Okay. Well, that's a great question. And, and this was really a fun part of the book to write. A lot of people know that uh, Massachusetts in the 17th century started producing these quite high quality silver shillings uh, with the image of a tree on one side and, and they say uh, Massachusetts in New England around the, the edge, the superscription. Uh, but they tend to be regarded as a kind of curiosity. And what I tried to do in this book, which, which uh, throughout the book, political economy that is the the material foundations that make a particular vision of of politics and society possible uh, is is a central concern. And so, what I really wanted to do in this section was to come to understand why and how the Massachusetts leadership, um, the Boston Mintmaster John Hall, set about producing these coins. Um, partly because the the risk of doing so is very great. Uh, the the coining of high grade money was a royal prerogative that kings guarded very carefully, and uh, the punishment for counterfeiting or illegal utterance of coin was you know quite severe. You could be killed. You could be executed for it. Secondly, there wasn't much silver in Massachusetts, at least not to begin with. And so uh, the decision to do this seemed a little bit odd to begin with. Um, so the wedding that you mentioned, the two weddings happened in 1676. 
and about half a world apart. It's a very long way from Potosi, which is, you know, high in the Andes, three miles above sea level, wow. a giant mountain of silver where the, the Spanish Empire was uh, collecting huge amounts of silver and coining it to uh, promote its, its huge expansion in the early modern period. And, you know, Boston, this little village really on the seaside, uh, far, far to the north. But through my research, I was able to figure out ways in which these distant places were connected. Uh, and the connection came from the fact that starting the 1640s, Massachusetts merchants, Boston merchants, start trying to trade in the Caribbean, in particular selling uh, New England products, food mostly, and timber to uh, the West Indian islands that are starting to invest heavily in uh, the production of sugar, uh, sugar cane, and, and uh, acquiring enslaved Africans to do the labor for that. Uh, and so through that trade, uh, silver from the Spanish Empire starts to trickle into Massachusetts. So the wedding was between the daughters of the masters of the mint in Potosi and in Boston. Now, the master of the mint in Potosi was a fabulously wealthy man. Uh, he was overseeing the production of coins in the great coinage center of the world at that time. The, the master of the mint in Boston, John Hall, was a reasonably wealthy merchant and silversmith, but uh, uh, nothing compared uh, with Quiroga, the, the Potosi merchant. And yet, each had a daughter who was marrying a young, aspiring lawyer and merchant at the time, and each of them gave their daughter a dowry. And, and to express the, the immense difference between the kind of uh, metallic wealth we're talking about here, the dowry that Quiroga provided to his daughter in the wedding in 1676 was something like 100,000 silver pesos. Uh, Half of it in the form of just the most unbelievably elaborate uh, fancy goods you could imagine, sort of mahogany bedsteads flaked in gold and linens by the score and, and, and uh, silverware and china and everything you could imagine for a household. And the other half of it was literally 20 giant bags filled with you know, solid silver pesos, which his mint had produced. I calculated each one of those bags could have uh, purchased uh, somewhere between, you know, six and eight adult male slaves at the time. In other words, the equivalent of uh, what's, what's uh, of something like a hundred enslaved people as half the dowry, just a, a, a phenomenal amount of money. By contrast, the the dowry that uh, John Hull gave to his daughter Hannah when she married Samuel Sewell amounted to about five hundred pounds, and I'm not quite enough quick enough at math to divide a hundred thousand by five hundred to give you a sense of the the scale of the difference here. But 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 you see my point. And yet, right, the point is that despite this difference, these two places. Uh, are, are profoundly connected because it's the silver that is trickling into Massachusetts out of trade with the Caribbean that was originally from Potosi that John Hall is converting into his own silver shillings. And he, even though the, the scale is vastly different, the point that I'm trying to make in the book is how essential that coinage was 
to creating a vigorous circulating economy in New England to convince New England farmers that they should produce more you know, corn and wheat or raise more livestock than they could use themselves because merchants like John Hull would, would buy up their goods, goods to the Caribbean and get good prices for it. And that the coins in the hands of the Massachusetts farmers could then be used to buy the imports from England, tools and books and clothing and everything that New Englanders needed. And, and so um, part of the, the big picture of the book is to show how from the beginning to the end of the story that I tell, Boston is profoundly connected to a very wide world of of commerce, of intellectual life, of political and cultural life in ways that, that few people before this have suspected. And it's, it's tightly tied to the city-state theme because that is generally how city-states operate. They're a city with a connection to a hinterland that produces this, that, or the other thing, and then they engage with the rest of the world, usually by means of trade of one kind or another, to, you know, get the kinds of things that their own little region doesn't have, and more so to benefit from the, the wide range of products and goods and ideas that the larger world can bring to them. And sometimes it could be as simple as it being the same physical silver that holds retooling into Massachusetts shillings that might have been actually a, a silver peso from Potosi. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, uh, part of the story involves the emergence in the 1640s of a scandal in Potosi when it was discovered by uh, the sort of Spanish crown and the inspectors that they sent that the earlier uh, merchants and silver uh, coiners in Potosi had actually been skimming on average up to about a quarter of the silver from each coin for themselves and producing these these debased underweight coins. And so uh, uh, it had become clear as far away as Massachusetts that a lot of the coinage that was arriving in Boston was of uncertain value and quality. And so one of the main reasons why the Massachusetts government wanted John Hull to start melting down Spanish coins and coining New England ones was so that they would know what they had because no one could trust Spanish coins in the wake of that silver unless you had the kind of skills of a silversmith like John Hull. Uh, and so part of the birth of the Massachusetts coinage itself uh, had to do with the sort of politics and economy of the faraway Spanish empire. And was it that moment of distrust in the Spanish currency? Is that what made Massachusetts bold enough to take the risk of minting its own money in a time when usually that would be the right of kings? Well, that's half the story. Uh, and the other half is that at the time that Massachusetts chooses to do this, 1652, there is no king in England. The English Revolution, the civil wars between Parliament and Crown had had come to a head in 1649. I, no pun intended, <laughs> but by coming to a head, uh, I mean that Charles I lost his. Right. And between 40, 1649 and 1660, England was ruled by Parliament under the protectorship of Oliver Cromwell. And so the concern was less that uh, they would be uh, charged with committing a treasonous act. But interestingly, even after the restoration of Charles's son, Charles II, in 1660, uh, 
John Hull kept right on doing it. He continued producing his coins until really almost his death in 1683. And the crown objected vigorously to this. And yet Massachusetts uh, pretty boldly insisted that these were valuable to his majesty's colony and to its economy and and defied the crown's orders to, to, to stop them. And this, this points to the political story I'm trying to tell in this part of the book that, um, that one of the goals of the city state of Boston was to be as autonomous as they could. They, they on the whole, uh, despised and rejected the Stuart monarchy, um, Charles I, Charles II, James II, um, largely because those are either crypto Catholics or open Catholics who were very much trying to align England's foreign policy with France and with Spain, the Catholic powers of Europe. And Boston wanted none of it. Uh, and so everything they could do to keep themselves at a distance from the crown and, and go their own way, uh, they did. Yeah, you see that a little bit later after the Glorious Revolution and then the Boston Revolt of 1689, just how hard the Mathers and, and Sir William Phipps fought for a new charter, right. uh, the restoration of self-rule. Right, and to retain things that the old charter had, like uh, town government, like uh, the ability of the freemen to elect their own representatives and upper house in the legislature um, and, and the independence of the Puritan churches and, and the ability to keep uh, the Puritan churches as the official church of Massachusetts, uh, despite the fact that it was, you know, not the Church of England. And in that same period, just after the Glorious Revolution, you returned to the idea of money and the political economy after the 1690 mm. Quebec disaster, right. which we, we talked about on the podcast recently, Massachusetts had war debts and had very little hard currency and had to pay off that debt by issuing paper money. Interestingly, for that idea of a, a global exchange of ideas, even though Boston's this little town on the fringes of the, the British Empire, you say that the, the decision to issue paper currency might have been based on a 1688 pamphlet about a bank of credit in Venice, yes, that's right. of mm -hmm. all things. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that currency system that Boston adopted briefly in, in 16? Well, sure. So as I, I, it sounds like you discussed on an earlier podcast, um, immediately after the Glorious Revolution, when William III becomes uh, England's new king, new king he, he begins uh, war against France and Louis XIV. Uh, and this is the first of the European imperial wars that spill over uh, directly into North America. And in, in this case, uh, by uh, warfare between New England and New France, uh, the, the French colony in Canada. And so to support their new Protestant king and champion, uh, Massachusetts sends this expedition to try to you know, conquer the St. Lawrence Valley. Uh, it doesn't go well. Um, they're, they're not able to uh, meet their goals, and it costs a lot of money to do it, money that wasn't in the treasury in terms of hard currency or anything like that. Yeah, they've been counting on the spoils of war to pay for the, well, the right. sailors and, and the soldiers. Well, right, and that was often the way in which war was, was conducted in early modern right. times. So, no spoils, no money, what do you do? Well, the answer that uh, really remarkably uh, Massachusetts decides to, uh, to try is by printing paper money basically promises that this 
this money that they're printing uh, will be collectible in taxation and they can essentially be uh, relied on by virtue of people's trust in the, in the state, that is in, in the colony of Massachusetts. Now, that was hard to do at a time when uh, the actual charter, the, the governmental foundation of the colony was in limbo. It had been uh, withdrawn under James II in 1685, and the new one hadn't um, been issued by William III. It wouldn't happen until 1691. One of the things that makes Massachusetts willing to do this is the fact that Sir William Phipps, who was the military commander leading this expedition, had the previous decade discovered, or I guess you'd say salvaged, this immense Spanish treasure ship uh, in the Caribbean, had given uh, the king his, uh, his uh, fifth of that, that was part of the sort of royal expectations, but then kept a lot of the rest for himself. And so immediately one of the wealthiest people in British North America. Exactly, uh, and was knighted for his efforts. Um, and so the fact that Phipps was sitting on this pile of silver uh, was one of the things that gave people more confidence that the state issuing these paper notes was you know, not utterly insolvent. But the other part of it is exactly what you, you say, that uh, there had been various European city-states that had tried experiments in banking, and one of them was Venice, and an English pamphlet describing this had been published uh, in the 1680s, and the Mathers, among others, were, you know, tremendous collectors of, uh, of all English political tracts and read this, and, and it made sense to them that if you had a state like Venice was in early modern times, where the people themselves feel deeply invested in it, right, totally connect their own well-being with the well-being of the state, then that itself is a kind of credit. Uh, and that if the state, you know, is seen to be sort of trustworthy and fiscally respectable and responsible, it can essentially issue money in whatever medium. It doesn't have to be gold or silver, uh, so long as it promises that it will uphold the value of those notes by accepting them as taxation. And so that's essentially what Massachusetts tries. It's the one of the very first experiments in the issuing of paper money not based on some kind of gold or silver currency. And it actually doesn't do too badly. I mean, the currency does depreciate in ways that people expected, but not like, you know, Berlin in the 1920s. It was, it was not thought to be Worthless. Or Massachusetts in the 1780s. Yeah, although that was a, another complicated story. But um, <laughs> but what it speaks to is, in many ways, the need for the kind of economy and the kind of state that the uh, Bostonians were developing to be creative in, in fiscal terms, right? They, they were trying to be a trading power in the, you know, big, wide Atlantic world, and they didn't have a their own sort of very high value products. They didn't have, mm -hmm. you know, Virginia's tobacco or Jamaica's sugar or the gold and silver of the Spanish empire. They had, you know, the ability to produce a lot of cheap stuff like, uh, you know, low grade food products, wheat and corn and, you know, salt meat and fish and, and, and timber. Uh, and so essentially their purpose as an economy was to figure out how to market cheap stuff. 
uh, and market it in other parts of the world that expected, uh, uh, you know, gold and silver or very credit worthy paper in payment. And, and so a lot of the early fiscal creativity coming out of Massachusetts was sort of uh, necessity being the mother of invention. Now, before we leave the topic of, of the economy and move on to another one of these lesser known stories I wanted to highlight mm-hmm. early on, especially in that 17th century, I think your phrasing is that Boston was a slave society in which the slaves mostly lived elsewhere. Right. How did Boston profit from the people who were enslaved out of sight or in other areas? And why was it so important to our early identity to keep slavery at arm's length? Those are the great questions. Um, so uh, in a way, I'm uh, working with a framework that was developed by a great American historian of slavery named Ira Berlin, uh, who died a couple of years ago, taught at Maryland, uh, and wrote a series of really great books on the subject. And he laid out a kind of framework for understanding early America by talking about slave societies, that is, societies, let's say, Virginia, where the economy is deeply embedded in, dependent on slavery, where enslaved people make up a a, a large uh, portion of the population. In Virginia, it was something like 40% in in the Mm. colonial period. The Carolinas, it might have been a a super majority. Yeah, Carolina even higher. And then, of course, the West Indies, super high uh, majority. Right, Under those terms, people tended not, you know, Ira Berlin doesn't think of Boston and New England as a slave society. He calls it a society with slaves. That is, there's a a smallish number of enslaved people there, but it's not dependent uh, on the institution. They're not prevalent. And I'm, to a certain extent, challenging that schema And the reason, I think, is that uh, it reverts back to what I was just saying about the kind of products that New Englanders can produce. Uh, Because it's a northern colonial region, the growing season was shorter, Uh, the soil uh, of New England, if anyone has ever tried to plant a garden around (laughs) here, you'll you'll hit rocks pretty soon. Uh, It's not like Virginia or Carolina in, in that regard. And so those early high value crops like sugar and tobacco, you couldn't grow them there. And so early on, it looked very much like the this region couldn't ever be much more than a kind of subsistence agricultural region. That is, it was perfectly easy to grow enough food to, to feed the people who live there. The indigenous people of New England already knew that. Um, it's very sort of biologically rich. But not a region that could participate in an Atlantic economy because it didn't really have much of anything of value that it could produce that it could sell. And the key to understanding the whole economy of the pre-modern Atlantic world, that is in the age of sail, is that it was so expensive to operate long-distance sailing ships, which took months to make their journeys. You had to pay the sailors and feed them and the technology, the boats themselves were big and expensive for their day. Uh, it meant that the price of any good that you shipped for across the ocean, uh, the majority of that price was the transportation costs, right? And so, uh, yes, in the first decade in New England, they were doing fine, you know, growing corn, you know, what they called Indian corn, raising livestock and all, but there was no market for New England, you know, perishable food products in England, uh, no sane English person would pay the transportation costs across the Atlantic 
to buy, you know, <laughs> a, a, a barrel of salt pork or something, right? That England right, itself produced right. those things. And so around 1640, it looked very much like the Massachusetts project might collapse. The uh, governor, John Winthrop in Boston, reports in his journal of, that people were starting to leave because they couldn't get a price for any of the goods that they knew how to produce. People were moving to the West Indies or going back to England. And the salvation of Boston's economy comes in the fact that at the very same time, Barbados is developing that early sugar economy and beginning to buy enslaved Africans in the thousands. And the the island of Barbados is quite small. They quite quickly use up all of the uh, arable land there to grow sugarcane, essentially meaning that they can't feed the thousands of enslaved Africans that they're importing. So they're starting to look for somewhere else that can sell them cheap you know, the food to keep the slaves alive, the timber products to make the barrels to ship the sugar and molasses and to, you know, build uh, 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 towns and buildings and that sort of thing. And and so this symbiotic relationship develops between Boston and its expanding hinterland and first Barbados and then Antigua and Jamaica and all these other islands that become the steady market for the cheap stuff that New England produces. And essentially the only market for a lot of this at the, uh, in the early days and the only way to get uh, high value goods like sugar or Spanish coin that they can then uh, sell in London and other European places. So overall, in terms of a site where enslaved Africans come to live, Boston and the surrounding region remain fairly small, but the entirety of its economic prosperity is is profoundly based on the the enslaved uh, production systems of the West Indies. Uh, so that's what I mean by uh, Boston and New England becoming not a not just a society of slaves, but really a slave society. Only the slaves live in a different colony, right? And so this has in the short term, immediate advantages for Boston and New England. It makes it easier for them to imagine that their, you know, voluntary society of Puritan English migrants is taking care of the needs of the spiritual issues, creating the kind of culture that they wanted from the beginning uh, and generating the kind of revenues necessary to keep that culture afloat essentially because there is this oppressed category of enslaved Africans somewhere else, right? And so, uh, it, it, in a sense, I'm saying it involves uh, uh, enabling a sort of hypocrisy about their situation. And the long arc of the book is meant to show how that hypocrisy will come back to haunt Boston, how, how uh, it, it, the world bites back despite their intentions. And that pattern continues right up through... The Civil War and Emancipation. Absolutely. Even I can almost see a cotton mill from my house here in Hyde Park, oh, really? Massachusetts, okay. um, which would have been active in uh, starting in the the 18th century. Right. And right. Um, so that cotton economy, of course, relied on enslaved labor right up through the moment of emancipation. Right. And from the 17th to the 18th and into the 19th century, 
Boston traders and and then later Boston manufacturers jump with that shifting economy right through. You sure. know? So so they're they're present at the creation uh, in the 1640s in the West Indies, and they play a big part in the making of the Cotton Kingdom uh, starting in the 18 teens. So I do want to spring forward from the 17th century into maybe the 18th century. Sure. And you've been discussing a little bit with the relationship to Barbados how the city-state of Boston and its surrounding hinterland interacted with some of the other regions of, in this case, British North America, the British Mm -hmm. uh, West Indies. There's a story in the book uh, about a man named, I think I'll butcher the the pronunciation, but I think it's Paul Mascarene. Mascarene, yes, Paul Mascarene. And in a way, this shines a spotlight on the relationship between the the city-state of Boston and some of its immediate surrounding powers in this case uh acadia or right, acadians right. so for our listeners who don't maybe know that term can you tell us what we mean by acadia in a time before state and provincial boundaries it goes back to uh the 17th century efforts by the french to settle the new world and the the first french settlements were focused on the saint lawrence valley you know quebec and montreal and places like that but Starting around the 1620s and 30s, the region at the northeastern end of that long section between Cape Cod on the southwest and the Bay of Fundy, what today are New Brunswick and Nova Scotia in, in Canada, the northeastern end of that is a place where the French begin colonizing. And the the colonists who settle there refer to the region as Acadia, uh, which you know is a French version of the same word for Arcadia or, or Edenic, right? It was, mm-hmm. uh, and if you go there in the summertime, uh, you'll see why it's uh, uh, the you know the the fertile lands and rivers, and uh, it's you know it's a cold, harsh place in the winter, but uh, a growing settlement of uh, around 20,000 French people are there by uh, the 1700s. But the the political problem emerges in 1710 when the British Empire uh, mounts an expedition, uh, originates in Boston, and captures that region from the French. Uh, from that point forward, it becomes a British colony called Nova Scotia, New Scotland, right? If you know, New England was to the south, now, you know, New Scotland would be its northern neighbor, just like in the home country, right? So from 1710 onward, Britain rules this region, but its settlers, its colonists are, are French, uh, Roman Catholics, because the French insisted on their colonies being religiously uh, orthodox. Uh, that plus uh, many, many indigenous people, um, the Mi'kmaq Indians, uh, Abnaki Indians, and um, a fair amount of the French population over the course of the 1700s has a certain amount of intermixing with the Indian population as well. And French uh, priests try to and succeed in converting uh, some of the Indian population to Roman Catholicism. And so from 1710 onwards, Britain had this weird problem of having this British colony in which the population practiced a religion that in the British Empire as a whole was generally forbidden, right? Or or severely uh, uh, suppressed, that is Roman Catholicism. 
it, it was a kind of an, anom- an anomaly in the empire. And Paul Masserine, the person that you mentioned, becomes a really compelling figure in how uh, the governance of this region developed, because he too was French. Um, he was born in the uh, southern part of France in the late 1600s. Um, but unlike the Acadians, he was from a Protestant family, a French Protestant. And in 1685, uh, Louis XIV of France decided that the earlier truce and agreement which had allowed uh, French Protestants to live in France as long as they kind of minded their own business was, was now no longer acceptable. And in 1685, he revokes the edict that had made that possible and begins to expel French Protestants, Huguenots they're often called, uh, from his kingdom. And so Paul Masserine, uh, his parents get him out of uh, France. Uh, he ends up in England. He grows up there uh, and joins the British Army, in particular a, a Huguenot regiment in the British Army. And so that's how he gets sent uh, to be part of the governing uh, military authority in Nova Scotia. And because he's fluent in French, because he understands the people uh, who live in Acadia, he becomes this really important sort of go-between or transitional figure. He's the person in the British army that the Acadian settlers trust the most. But interestingly, he also becomes quite enamored of Boston. Uh, because it's it sounds a, like he almost splits his time between Boston he, and Exactly, and he does. He Especially... Uh, the, the, the brutal winters up there were such that the, the military officers, not the poor enlisted men who had to stay, but the officers tended to make their winter homes to the southwest in Boston. And that's what uh, Paul Masserine does as he's rising through the ranks. He builds a home uh, right on uh, School Street uh, in, in the heart of town. Uh, he marries into an, a, a Boston you know, English-speaking family. He supports a Huguenot refugee church right there on School Street. Uh, and, and becomes really tightly integrated with the, the Boston community. And he, they embrace him and he embraces them. He becomes close to the Hutchinson family, who are important in politics and, and the economy. Um, and, you know, lives this kind of dual life between Boston and Nova Scotia and, and, is, and is really important in fostering trade relationships and keeping the peace between, you know, this British military rule and these French... Catholic Acadians, uh, uh, a really pivotal figure. And, and in a larger sense, he demonstrates how well Bostonians, including merchants, could get on with these supposed enemies, uh, you know, despite their ideological and religious differences, you know, if there was trade to be done, if there were connections to be made. And during this period, actually, uh, Boston merchants become much more important to supplying the whole world of uh, of Acadia, of the sort of eastern parts of the French colonies, than France itself does. Uh, Boston merchants are able to sell them better goods cheaper than, than French, French merchants can. And so you get these quite interesting ties between these two competing regions. Paul Masserine eventually rises to be the military governor of yeah. Annapolis Royal, which right. is a very important position. Right, right. But then things changed for him after the beginning of the war of uh, the Austrian succession, right? He gets pushed aside uh, in large part because starting around 1740, and as you say, the Austrian succession war picks up in 1744, increasingly the ways in which the British military 
the, Nar- the army and the navy are surging in importance in the governance of the empire as a whole uh, are, are shaping how the colonies are ruled, right? Between about 1710, really, 1713, uh, when the last war ends, and 1740, there's this long period of peace where Britain, France, Spain, etc. are largely, you know, uh, minding their own business, not at war with each other. And then that all changes around 1740. And war between Britain and Spain first, and then France develops. And then really for the next half century, maybe more, um, these big European empires are at war with each other. And now that's increasingly shaping the policy of how these empires govern their colonies as well. Instead of being you know, essentially left alone, they're now being increasingly drawn into these military projects. And the thing is, on the whole, Boston and New England were, through most of the 1700s, really strongly supportive of these projects. They were the best colonies in the British Empire at raising troops, at raising money to support these things. They sent soldiers to... Uh, you know, what's now Venezuela, Cartagena, to Havana, to, you know, the all over the Caribbean to, to fight these wars. Um, and they were willing to support this big project that uh, the British Army, together with the colonial governor of Massachusetts, William Shirley, cook up having to do with Acadia. And... <sighs> on a certain kind of abstract level, you can understand why the British army is interested in this. They're very dubious of these French Catholics in in their province, right? What they think of as their province. And they think that these French Catholics are constantly conspiring with the Indians there to try to throw off British rule. And once these wars break out, there is some violence along those lines. But the plan they come up with is is really this extraordinary effort to do what has to be thought of as a kind of ethnic cleansing of Acadia. That is, they come up with this idea that they will use the British military, that they will recruit soldiers from Massachusetts to support it. And what they will do is essentially round up all of the Acadians and get them out of this region and move them, you know, spread them across all of the other British colonies in little bits here and there to kind of destroy their cohesion as a culture and then replace them with good British Protestants that will take over Acadia. And so in 1755, that's exactly what they do. And, and so the last part of the chapter that starts with Paul Masserine and he's, his efforts to sort of knit these regions together tells the story of how it comes apart and how uh, you know Boston merchants and military figures recruit Massachusetts soldiers and send them up into the Acadian woods to conduct this ethnic cleansing campaign to round up all of the people and to burn their villages and destroy their crops and their churches and everything in order to, to get them out of there. And it's it's really a, a sort of brutal and horrifying episode, including for a lot of the uh, soldiers from New England who enlisted in this. And I argue that it's really the start of the disillusionment of Boston and New England with British rule. That it's not about taxes or anything like that. It really comes in beginning to see firsthand what it means for military governance to be taking over Britain's colonial project. So I think the period from from the resettlement of the Acadians we get this this acceleration toward 
the American Revolution and, and what's really for our listeners probably a more familiar period in Boston history. But I want to pick up your narrative just slightly after that period. And another one of these more unfamiliar stories, I think, where perhaps during this early period, all the different provinces of British North America had their own identities. And then there's an attempt to knit them together through the ratification of the Constitution. So you point to this period between 1789 and the, the constitutional government and the run-up to the Civil War is a time when Boston was beginning to chafe under the idea of the the broader American quote unquote identity. Was that a new sentiment or was it just more apparent once we had a, a political uh, body, sort of a superseding political body above yeah, that's uh, a, the city state of Boston? That's a good and important question. Um, I think the best way for me to answer it goes back to what you've been saying all along that uh, I've in many ways tried to avoid some of the more familiar stories of Boston and its history and focus. Which I appreciate. And, I love to hear these, and, these lesser known yeah, stories. Yeah, and instead focus on, on the unfamiliar. And part of the reason for, let me just call it this sort of excessive familiarity of some of these stories, the the you know Paul Revere, Lexington and Concord, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, Cradle of Liberty, Shotters Round the World, <laughs> all that kind of stuff, is that the very fact that they're cliché, you know, that you sort of chuckle when I mention them, has everything to do with the way in which they have been emphasized again and again, in part because they they ring so true with the United States founding story. That's uh, how we want to conceive of ourselves also. Yeah, or that I would say how many Americans have wanted to conceive of themselves since the Civil War in particular. Right, right. Um, but that's not how Bostonians thought of themselves before the American Revolution. There there was no incipient American identity, right? The The idea of a single new nation state emerging out of some but not all of british colonies in the new world right after all nova scotia and florida and jamaica and uh barbados etc they don't join in the rebellion against britain it's only some of britain's colonies and those colonies didn't really have a whole lot in common with one another before then in fact one of the you know, little stories I recount sort of in passing in the book is how Josiah Quincy Jr. is touring through uh, the American colonies uh, in 1773 and 74 before war breaks out. And at a dinner among at a plantation in South Carolina is just harangued by these Carolina planters who say, the only reason you're raising all of this rebellion stuff is that once you throw off British rule, you're going to dominate us. You know, you're going to try to take over us. And uh, Quincy is aghast at this. The thought had never occurred to him. And the last thing any of uh, his fellow Bostonians wanted was to be connected to this, you know, slave-based plantation society in Carolina, which he thought was just utterly abhorrent. So, yes, what does happen as a result of this successful rebellion is then this process of assembling a new kind of state out of these colonies that I would argue 
each joined this rebellion for quite different reasons. That the the, the purpose of let's say Carolinians or Virginians in deciding to uh, defy the crown were not the same as those of Massachusetts, uh, but they were congruent enough to to make the rebellion work. And despite what Josiah Quincy Jr. might have been told over dinner, yeah. coming out of that constitutional period, we find ourselves dominated by the the slaveocracy by Virginia, right? Uh, right. Thanks to the, the Three Fifths Compromise. Uh, exactly. The so the, the point that uh, I try to make in the post Revolution and post Constitution chapters is that although Massachusetts, you know, in the state ratifying convention that happens in in Boston at the Federal Street Church, although they do vote to ratify the Constitution by a very narrow margin, about 10 votes, 11 votes out of 360 some, and only when uh, promises are made that they will forward a set of amendments to make the Constitution better because there's so much objection to it, including the absence of a Bill of Rights, only uh, so that that narrow vote to to ratify does pass, but from really the very beginnings of the inauguration of national government, the first Congress in 1789, Boston's members of Congress are immediately horrified by how uh, partisan and regional legislation in Congress becomes. They had in many ways imagined uh, a, a confederation of states as one that would try to value uh, consensus, you know, that um, national legislation would pass only when, uh, you know, people from all over the regions of the country could get together and, and say, yes, that's something that we can all get behind. And instead, uh, right away in the 1790s, in the first decade, uh, especially under Jefferson's administration starting in 1801, uh, majorities in Congress, often led by Southerners, as you say, also supported by the extra votes that the three-fifths uh, compromise, the three-fifths clause gave them, are passing legislation that's incredibly uh, punitive and damaging to, to Boston and New England's interests. And I think uh, the best and most obvious example of this is in 1807, when during the wars between Britain and France, the Napoleonic Wars, when you know trade in the Atlantic world was quite difficult, um, Jefferson, with big majorities backing him in Congress, uh, passes this embargo saying that the only way the United States can, can deal with these warring powers in Atlantic trade is to shut off all American overseas trade with anybody. And of course, you know, Virginia tobacco growers don't worry about this too much because you can store tobacco for a long time and it doesn't go bad. And, you know, the European markets will be there, you know, and, and, and they'll sell their stuff. But for a city like Boston that had been dependent on overseas trade going back now to the 1640s, this was just economic death, right? The, uh, the, and it's their own government, uh, you know, supposedly representing the people as a whole that had, had you know, uh, cast this death sentence upon them. And yet there was nothing they could do about it. They didn't have the votes. And so that's the sort of beginning of this sense that 
perhaps the ratification of the Constitution was a bad idea. Uh, Bostonians start coming up with one scheme after another to amend it or change it so that uh, they can be more fairly represented under it. And, and the, the larger point is that um, the relative autonomy that the city-state of Boston had generated in the 17th century and had defended through the 18th century was slipping away uh, ironically at the hands of uh, the government that it had uh, narrowly decided to join. And that kind of comes to a, a head or a crisis point during the War of 1812 when New Englanders led by Bostonians, um, despite the name, enter into the, the Hartford Convention. Right. Well, that's actually a, a kind of old Boston uh, subterfuge that <laughs> that in order to disguise the dominance that Boston has over the New England region, they thought it would be best to hold the convention at Hartford. So it would, you know, create a, an appearance of greater unanimity across the region. Not that there wasn't that, but people were already saying, oh, it's these Boston guys, the, the Essex Junto, as they were called, who were running the show here. And they were trying to show otherwise. Uh, and again, the thing to remember is this isn't the legislatures, and these aren't their congressmen that they're sending to Washington. This is an extra legal convention, much like, well, like the constitutional convention itself had been, or like the revolutionary uh, congresses that were meeting in the 1770s. Uh, they meet and they say, look, the only thing we can do here is to amend the constitution. And they come up with a set of seven amendments that they, they say, you know, look, we have to get these through, uh, in order to be willing to stay in this confederation. Uh, and they unanimously vote in their favor and they send, you know, three Bostonians in a carriage to deliver this to, uh, James Madison, who's the president at the time in Washington. And they just have the dreadful misfortune of having their journey to Washington happen as both Andrew Jackson is defeating the British at New Orleans and as the treaty ending the War of 1812 is being signed, uh, in, in Belgium. They, they, they can't know that these are happening. But it makes them look bad, right? It, it, they had thought they were going to be able to get the Madison administration to agree to put these forward because uh, things were so dire right before that point. The British were had burned the White House and the Capitol. They were in, invading the coast of Maine. Uh, they had thought the Madison administration was on the verge of collapse. And instead, uh, Madison pulls this victory out of his hat and uh, New Englanders are, are, are made to bear the brunt of it. But it's characteristic of this sense, the of desperation of New Englanders under this uh, American regime. And it only gets worse then, in a, in a weird way, uh, in that everything that Bostonians try to do to make their situation better only embeds them more deeply in this problem. Uh, the great example of that is the rise of the cotton textile industry. Uh, Francis Cabot Lowell, uh, the founder of the Lowell Mills, thought that the way to deal with the kind of crisis that Jefferson's embargo or the War of 1812 brought on their overseas trade uh, was to be not so reliant on overseas trade anymore, that, that this could solve some of their economic problems. And so he uh, essentially uh, pirates the process that the English had developed for large-scale mass manufacture of cotton textiles and replicates it um, first in, in Waltham at the uh, mills there along the Charles and then on an even bigger scale up in Lowell at, at on the Merrimack River. 
it was on one hand a brilliant idea to come up with a form of manufacturing that would reduce uh, the Boston economy's dependence on overseas trade. This way, you know, Jefferson or, or another embargo like Jefferson's isn't going to ruin the economy. <laughs> on the other hand, the only thing that makes the cotton textile uh, mills function is the fact that the southern states that are expanding to the west, like Mississippi and Louisiana and Alabama and the like, are producing ever more raw cotton. And so even though it was meant to restore Boston's economic autonomy, the effect is to uh, tighten the linkage between New England and the Deep South uh, in economic terms. So within about 15 years, uh, the whole orientation of Boston's economy has profoundly shifted in this direction. And, and for that reason, now the, the slave-based economy of the American South continues to have a hold over Boston's autonomy and its politics, but just a different kind of hold than it had had earlier. That deep intertwining of our economy, our cotton economy, our manufacturing economy here in New England and the slave-based economy of the South is going to continue, like we said at the top of the show, right up until the moment of emancipation. Mm -hmm. and that becomes the same moment where you, you peg sort of the downfall or the de decline of Boston as an independent city-state to that moment of Union victory right. in the Civil War. So how, how is it in our local history, our national history, we remember that time as a triumph for Boston and New England. How does that actually hide what you see as the, the downfall right. of the city's independent nature? Right. Well, I would say it's the autonomy and also the sense of being a kind of unified or consensus culture. Uh, and I think the thing that tends to get forgotten, uh, especially in the celebratory way in which Bostonians and New Englanders generally <laughs> think about their region with respect to slavery and emancipation. Uh, what, what tends to be forgotten is how bitterly and violently divided the city and the region were in the 1830s, 40s, 50s over the slavery question. And it's, it's an exact outgrowth of the deeper and deeper commitment to the cotton textile economy during this period. By 1831, the majority of Boston's seagoing trade no longer went to foreign countries. It went to Charleston and Savannah and Mobile and New Orleans, buying raw cotton there, bringing it back to the city, and then bringing manufactured cotton and cotton products back to the South, right? And so with that, a larger and larger percentage of the jobs in Boston and the surrounding region are devoted to that economy, to uh, making of the cotton, to the processing of it into clothing, uh, and to all of the kind of related industries, the, the merchants and the bankers and the people in, involved in all of the auxiliary, auxiliary connections to it. So when anti-slavery movements and abolitionist movements start in Boston in the late 1820s and the 1830s, many of them promoted by escaped slaves or free blacks who've come to, to Boston, like David Walker, David for instance, Walker. or, or yeah. uh, William Lloyd Garrison, they are met with enormous hostility 
and hostility from people who are often referred to as as gentlemen or res- respectable people of Boston. And so you riots get, you know, by the respectable gentlemen. Yeah, of, you of get Boston. riots and violence, and 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 from you know the beginnings of abolitionism right up to and through the Civil War. So that, for instance, even after Lincoln was elected in November of 1860, and as the southern states are beginning to secede from the Union, starting with South Carolina, when Wendell Phillips, the the Boston radical abolitionist give speeches around the city uh, against slavery and against, you know, these seceding states and all, he has to be protected by a large armed guard so that the pro-slavery elements in the city won't, you know, lynch him, right? It's that bitterly uh, divisive in the city. there are a lot of David other- Walker. David Walker was widely thought to have been assassinated. Yeah, we don't know, but that's that's not impossible. Uh, Garrison was nearly killed in 1837, uh, uh, along with uh, uh, William Thompson, a visiting uh, British abolitionist at the time. Uh, it, it's really violent and awful for for much of this period. And as you mentioned earlier in the show, the the rendition of the fugitive slaves back to their masters in slavery could only be carried out by the presence of, you know, large columns of armed U.S. Marines with uh, cavalry and uh, artillery supporting them and the like. Uh, the, uh, and so this is what I talk about uh, as as the period of the end of the autonomous city-state of Boston. It's tearing itself apart from inside over the conflict on this subject, it feels itself to be increasingly uh, under the thumb of Virginia and Virginia's control over the U.S. government and military. And then you get this bizarre and in many ways unexpected turnaround with the Civil War that you get Lincoln's election, which itself was was uh, unlikely and strange in so many ways. And then uh, suddenly it's the South seceding and not the North, which had been the sort of norm up until that time. And then this civil war in which the Northern troops actually come out and defeat the Confederacy. And yes, you, you might say, well, that's kind of a victory for Boston. Well, for part of Boston. But I describe it as the end of the city-state for the very reason that with this surprising turnaround and union victory, that distance, that sense of autonomy of going its own way between Boston and the United States under which it had, you know, suffered so much for so long, that now evaporates. And Boston actually embraces the United States and its project in a way that it had never done before. And the the event, which to me is kind of a metaphor for this that I conclude the book with uh, is this, that just as the Union is uh, triumphing in the war and as uh, the Confederacy is surrendering, Richmond has been taken, the Confederate government has collapsed, a meeting is held at the Boston Athenaeum, you know, the the library and art gallery there on uh, Beacon Street, and its trustees decide that this is the moment for them to put together a team led by Francis Parkman, the historian, to go and scour the Confederacy and collect by any means they can all of the records of the Confederacy, its newspapers, its documents, its uh, economic, anything they can get, take it and move it back to Boston, which means that today the Boston Athenaeum is one of the best places to study the Confederacy during the Civil War. And and it's a, it's a, a kind of 
fulfillment of the thing that Josiah Quincy was told Bostonians wanted back in 1774, but which wasn't true then, right? The, that now there is this uh, notion that Boston is part of this new triumphal union that is going to, you know, extend its cultural hegemony over even the plantation south in a way that it had never wanted to before. And so, yes, of course, it's not the end of Boston and its history, but for me, it is the the, the end of that story that began in 1630 of an idealistic group of people trying to create a, a, a new sort of polity on the model of a small self-governing city with a certain set of values and interests that by 1865, it's no longer possible to think of Boston in that way anymore. As you wrap up the book in the period immediately after the Civil War, mm-hmm. you obviously put a lot of thought into how historians of the past helped to create the myths that sustained that earlier vision of the the city-state of Boston and then the the systems that replaced that vision. Can you tell us a little bit about how historians created this new narrative of Boston in that uh, immediate postbellum period? Yeah. Well, uh, I just mentioned Francis Parkman. Uh, He was the leader of that expedition from the Athenaeum to, to, to get the Confederacy's stuff. And he plays a huge transitional role in this. He, of course, was famous for writing his uh, multi-volume history of the conflict between Britain and France for North America, uh, which he takes all the way through the Seven Years' War and Pontiac's Rebellion, but weirdly skips the American Revolution, which is, of course, the last time that Britain and France uh, and armies from both of those places fought over the control of North America. And I had long asked myself, why did he do that? I mean, he must have known that France was the major U.S. ally in the American Revolution. And the answer that I've settled on is this, that that long series of books that he wrote has this very stark uh, way of opposing Britain and France. In Parkman's mind, Britain was the forerunner of what the United States would become. It was about and commerce and constitutional government and Protestantism, whereas France was about absolutism and Catholicism. And and so he saw these as sort of warring ideological forces over North America. And the problem, of course, is that the American Revolution doesn't fit that model, right? Because France supports the United States and Britain is their opponent. And so my sense is that he just couldn't come up with a conceptual way of dealing with that. And so he left it out of his sequence. And in a sense, what he does and what other historians following his model do after the Civil War, and he writes a number of his volumes after the Civil War, is to project that story that Boston represents the colonies and that it was always in the model of of Britain and self-government and the like, and that all it really had to do was to sort of shed the problematic parts of Britain, like monarchy and the like, in order to find its natural home in the United States. And what Parkman has to do, and other historians had to do in order to, to make Boston look like the sort of natural leader of what the United States was going to become, was to forget all of that conflict between 1787 and 1860, to to ignore how badly Boston was situated in the United States for most of that early period, 
right? Uh, and so what I'm trying to do is to set aside the product of that forgetting and restore our attention to this equally important part of the long story so people can see that the coming of the United States, the way it gets formed, Boston's role in it is much more complicated and much more contingent in that than the sort of just so story of the, the cradle of liberty uh, uh, and the freedom trail would have us believe. For myself and, and for our, our listeners, having a new lens to see the, the story of the formation of Boston, the formation of our modern identity as Bostonians is really welcome. And it's a, a different conception of Boston than we're used to seeing. So I urge all of our listeners to rush out and buy the book. Me too. Before I let you go, are there local events where folks could come out and hear more about the book or have a chance yes, to hear absolutely. about it from you? The one that's coming up soonest is on November 13th. That's a Wednesday. Well, I'll be giving a talk at the Museum of Industry in Waltham on Moody Street. And I believe that's at 7.30 p.m. Perfect. And we'll link to that in the show notes this week. And is there any place that our listeners should look online if they'd like to find out more about you or your work? Uh, I'm not a big uh, social media user or anything, but I do have a web page at the Yale University History Department website. Perfect. We'll include okay. a link to that as well. Professor Mark Peterson, I just want to say thanks once again for joining us this week and for dedicating what's turned into over an hour to, uh, to this interview. Well, thanks, Jake. I really enjoyed it. Well, that about wraps it up for this week. The book, The City-State of Boston, The Rise and Fall of an Atlantic Power, 1630-1865, is available now. Check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 155 for an Amazon link to purchase it. We'll also link to Professor Peterson's Yale faculty webpage and to more information about his November 13th talk in Waltham. And of course, we'll have links to information about both of our featured historic events. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255. We'd love to share your audio feedback in a future show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or just go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. That's one of the best ways to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week with an interview with Nancy Seashoals, author of The Atlas of Boston History. <laughs>